Welcome to the Security Sessions podcast, brought to you by Talis and hosted by me, Nera Jones. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the technologies, people, and processes behind information security and delving into topics like data security, remote access, and digital transformation. We'll be speaking to Talis and industry experts to bring you fresh perspectives on how to navigate the world of cloud security. Today's episode is entitled, Is the Future of Digital Identity Safe? The COVID-19 pandemic has not only significantly accelerated digital transformation in all industries, it has further established digital services as one of the foundational pillars of the transformation of economies worldwide. For example, payments are becoming increasingly cashless, ubiquitous, instantaneous and invisible. This global shift is here to stay. And as our behaviors adapt, cybercriminals and fraudsters continue to innovate. As we continue to live our lives remotely, never has the importance of being able to distinguish between genuine and fraudulent interactions been more felt. Digital identities, how we create them and how we protect them is at the epicenter of this change. Today, I am joined by two fantastic guests, Asaf Lerner, Director of Product Management, Identity and Access Management at Thales, and Uri Rivner, CEO and Co-Founder at Regutize. So we've got a lot to talk about today. So without further ado, to you, Yuri, what types of digital identity frameworks are emerging and how do you see this evolving? All right. So uh, identity, access management, authentication, all of these uh, frameworks uh, are something that the industry is investing in, uh, you know, time over time. It's very, very important to continue to invest in those directions. But at the same time, it's also very important to understand that criminals are very adaptive. Forces are, you know, very a clever bunch, basically. And they will find ways around pretty much anything, right? And uh, I'll, I'll give two specific examples. One is uh, the development or the evolution of uh, UK online banking fraud losses. Um Think about 2004, 2005, the phishing days. All of the banks were very concerned about phishing. The level of online banking fraud losses at the time was about 20 million pounds, right? 2007, that, that, that's the number. Uh, 2008, something happened. The UK moved into faster payment. Uh, but uh, at that point, all of the banks, in order to prepare for faster payments, because, hey, it was obvious that criminals are going to attack, you know, just take the money and run, right? Um, they prepared by uh, enforcing strong customer authentication, right? Multi-factor authentication, you know, these smart card readers that are very prevalent in the UK or, or OTPs and things like that when you do a transaction. Uh, the purpose was to eliminate fraud. Basically, the expectation was from fraud, for, for fraud to move from 20 million to zero, right? That was the expectation. The result was that within three years, it tripled. Okay, after the industry moved to faster payment. Why? Because the process came up with malware. And then the industry be- developed solutions against malware. And then the process counter- uh, counteracted with remote access. And then social engineering and things like that. If you actually look at the fraud levels today uh, in the UK, 
it is around uh, 200 million pounds uh, in uh, fraud losses and 250 million pounds a year in scams. And that's a second you know, good example. Let, let, let's actually talk about scams. So I'll, I'll give you a, a, a real story which will allow us to differentiate between a fraud and a scam. Um, this is a true story. Happened a few years ago in the UK. Someone got a phone call from her mobile provider. Hey, you're late on your fees. Can you please pay? And she pays with a debit card. Then five minutes later, she gets a phone call from the bank. Um, we see a suspicious transaction. Can you explain? Yeah, it's my mobile provider. No, it's not. We see that you send money to someone, but it was it was not your mobile provider. It was actually a criminal. And uh, unfortunately, you gave them your debit card information, which is linked to your bank account. So we'll have to switch you to a new bank account. Can you please log in online and we'll give you a new bank account and move all of your money to this new bank account? All right. So uh, the user goes to her online banking account and says, all right, I have 26,000 pounds. Can I move everything? And the, 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 the bank says, no, 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 don't move everything right now. Just move 9,000 pounds. We will tell you that it's in your new and safe bank account. And then we'll tell you to move more, right? Obviously, the second call was also uh, done by the same cyber uh, crime ring. And this is a scam. The difference between a scam and fraud is in fraud, someone is accessing your account and the, the transaction is unauthorized. With scams, someone is tricking you to go into your own account and then the transaction is authorized. It's known as authorized push payments, APP scams. And the size of APP scams uh, in the UK are, are, are horrific, right? Uh, the overall uh, rate is close to $1 billion. And the bank started to uh, refund uh, victims after a big outcry because a lot of uh, victims were, were elderly. And there was a big social issue around all of this. They lost a lot of money. So the bank started to uh, refund the uh, uh, victims, although it wasn't an unauthorized payment. It was an authorized payment. Why is this important? Again, if you think about uh, the fact that, you know, throughout all of these years, if, since 2007 and today, 100% of, uh, uh, you know, fraud transactions are uh, strongly authenticated, you know, so the, the UK has the best sort of uh, defenses around uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, I think, globally. Uh, you understand that uh, criminals just find ways to uh, circumvent defenses. Let's call it like that. Asaf? Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to take that into my world, um, you know, protecting companies, help companies protect their data. Um, and and I, I hear the same, I, I, I hear the same music, right? I, um, one of the most, like I just uh, reviewed the 2021 uh, ransomware in numbers, right? So it turns out that the most, the best way for, for the attackers to get in is basically using the same methods that you just described. They will call people that um, have little to no uh, security awareness uh, within the company, like people from finance, people from operations, uh, administrative uh, uh, personas, and they will tell them using basically scams, right? They will scam them to to take actions to uh, click, you know open a file, uh, click on a on, on a malicious link, uh, um, or or even give them their password, um, and, and then those attackers will be able 
to go in, you know, which brings me to the point that we, you know, we spoke about technology, right? The arms race between the, the bad actors and the industry and regulation, uh, see who can, you know, tilt the balance towards their side. And, and at the end of the day, I think there's a line where technology stops because the bad actors, the, 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 the bad guys, they, they will always look for the weakest link. And the weakest link is, 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 is human, right? Yeah, I, I've, I have a sentence that says humans cannot be patched. Exactly. <laughs> not, not easily, at least not easily. But, you know, I, if, if we're talking about things, I always say to, to, to my customers, listen, the, the bad actors, they don't break in, they log in. Right? They actually log in. So my, my point is that th- those attackers, right, will go and, and, and go after the weakest links, the people, right? People that are using bad uh, uh, or weak passwords, people that are, are not security aware people. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we cannot really blame people because it is hard as it is. People just want to do their job. And in, in the banking world, in, 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 you know, real life, people just want to enjoy technology in order to, to conduct life, digital life. So we cannot blame people for, for, for not, you know, for being victims. We, we have gone into this digital era where everything is online payment, all the transaction, most of the money is being transacted online. Uh, you know, all the shoppings are, are actually e-commerce these days. You can't blame people for moving and adopting new technology. Um, as much as you cannot blame workers that are now forced to work remotely and, and they are being hacked, right? Or those companies are being breached now. I, I think it falls on the same, in, in the same category that companies, regulation, governments are not moving fast enough. W- would you agree? Uh, yeah, definitely. And if they do enforce something, it may be the wrong sort of uh, war, right? So, for example, um, if you think about European uh, regula- regulators enforcing strong customer authentication on digital payments, right, which essentially is two-factor authentication, they don't need to look far. They just need to look at the UK. And again, if the UK in 2007 moved to 100% strong authentication in online banking, and the result was a tenfold, uh, you know, increase in in fraud. Why are you why are you enforcing, let's say, e-commerce companies to use the same technology, right? I think the point again is you have to. It's all about risk management at the end of the day. You have to understand the risk. Now, by the way, you mentioned scams inside the enterprises, and I totally agree. And I think that you know social engineering and spear phishing and all of these techniques they're prevalent everywhere. I want to give another a very interesting example uh, that happened in the U.S. Uh, a company called Ledger. I don't know if you're familiar. They are basically a, a hardware uh, a device for storing all of your cryptocurrency uh, keys. Uh, I'm holding. I'm holding one in my hand right now. All right. Literally. So you should know that there was a major breach a few years ago. Uh, Two hundred seventy-two thousand customers were, were were hit, and essentially uh, the information that was uh, uh, you know stolen according to ledger wasn't that horrible it was only the name the phone number and the mailing address you know essentially it's like what can you do with that but what happened was that uh, 
uh, almost instantly, uh, a lot of uh, interesting social engineering attacks started to happen. So the first thing that happened, obviously, you know, regular phishing and then text messages from Ledger, you know, dear someone, our software has a critical issue, etc. Click here to do uh, the reset. And you should know that there's like this uh, 24 uh, word uh, recovery passphrase, which everyone wants, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you're the criminal, because then they own your crypto, right? So this is uh, to recover that. This is to collect that from the user. Uh, then there were uh, other things like Chrome Web Store uh, extensions that look exactly like the Ledger application. So you just you know uh, install that instead of a regular Ledger uh, extension. And again, it, it just collects this uh, recovery for, uh, phrase. And, and what happened then, you know, the company did feel bad about it. So what they did was started, they started to send, um, you know, like, like a very nice uh, shrink-wrapped shrink uh, box of uh, Ledger Nano X uh, with, with, a, with a note from the uh, CEO kind of apologizing about all of this. And essentially they, they said, hey, we do apologize if you can just take this uh, new device and connect that new device and uh, hey, re recover your uh, crypto. It was social engineering. It wasn't the company sending those devices. And it's, and it's hard to believe that they did social engineering with a physical ledger device that they sent to those people because they had their mailing addresses. There's no end to creativity, I think is my point, right, for, for criminals. So you both mentioned this uh, arms race, this arms race between government regulators and businesses trying to establish trust frameworks on one hand and criminals and fraudsters on the other hand. So what do we need to do in terms of both security and fraud prevention? So first to you, Asaf, on the security aspect. Yeah, so thanks. Um, you know, um, there, there's an old saying that, that says that if you are uh, in the jungle, right, uh, um, with, with a bunch of people and there's a tiger starting to, to chase you, right, you don't have to be the fastest. We have to be just faster than the person, the, the next person, right? Um, and, and I think in many of the cases, it, it, it works like that in security. Right, and, and I'll explain. Um, the bad actors, right, unless you are being specifically targeted by a government, government nation, you know, state at a, a level attack, or, or you are an interest, but uh, a special interest uh, by, by any attack group, uh, other than those cases, most of the attacks are, are just there because you are exposed you are less protected than the other companies that those bots found um, and, and therefore you are a target. So I would say that in this arms race, you should make sure that any system, any technology, any best practice you choose has to tick a few boxes. One first is make sure that Anything you do, and, and, I'm, and I'm really focusing here on the enterprise security level, right? Um, but, but in some way, some way it's also um, uh, uh, relevant to, to other security fields. But anything you do, you should be aware, you should make sure that 
it keeps business continuity because we can, again, force security uh, uh, from here to infinity, but at some point it will paralyze the business. So we need to make sure that business is, is, is running and, and users are able to do their job, right? And we need to make sure that uh, uh, we are taking best practices, right? And, and using the latest and greatest best practices to be to not get on on those bad actors radar I'm, and and again i'm talking about most attacks are are actually random so that that's that's and, and there's a, a a huge set of tools and actions one can take in order to make sure it's there but but i will stay but but i will stop here and and just Summarized by saying again, make sure business is running. Make sure you take a whole list of, of of best practices in order to to be secure enough, right? Because you can never be total secure. You, you have to be secure enough uh, for those random attacks to bypass you. Thank you, Asaf. And, and Yuri, on the fraud prevention side, I mean, surely security and fraud prevention. Are- Two different things, but they are both necessary and need to work hand in hand. Uh, let me first relate to uh, Asaf. I, I agree with what Asaf is saying. At the end of the day, you have to, you know, do a balancing act and manage your risks. Right? That's that's essentially what everyone needs to do. You have to identify the risks and manage them. Uh, uh, I, I will say one thing, which is. Um, Try to uh, balance visible security and invisible security, like things that the attackers can see and things that they don't really see. And uh, we'll try to guess exactly how you, you know, try to track them, but it's going to be very difficult for them to really figure it out, right? Um, so if you think about, uh, you know, authentication with the multi-factor authentication, obviously that's like very visible, right? If you think about uh, looking at the actual behavior of a user or, or a machine, that's something that is uh, invisible, right? It's behind the scenes. It's it's not something that is visible. Um, l- let's say that you uh, are trying to map out uh, state-sponsored attacks. And by now, there's enough information that allows you to understand their behavior. I'm not talking about specific, uh, you know, code that they're running or stuff like that, but just the the, the typical behavior of uh, of, of uh, you know cyber criminals, uh, but also the typical behavior of good users, right? And then you can have both typologies, and you can use them uh, behind the scenes to see whether uh, the alert that you just uh, saw makes sense, right? And that's the uh, uh, that's the idea. It is to balance things that are visible with things that are uh, operating behind the scenes that are more difficult for criminals to figure out and therefore they will less you know be prepared for it and, and have the right defenses against uh, against so i think that's like the way uh, i would i would think about it in uh, uh, enterprise security and also in in, in banking and uh, fintech and uh, any other uh, domains you, you you do need some security that people can see but a lot of the security you can build uh, uh, you know, behind the scenes, so people cannot really see uh, what's going on, and also the attackers cannot see what's going on, right? I think it's the right way to, uh, you know, to to, to move forward. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, the, the the problem keeps changing, right? The 
the, the the attacks keeps changing all the time uh, the, the the methods the uh, you know the way they are uh, you know the attackers are actually uh, operating so think about some like like a platform or, or or a framework that is more agile that allows you to adapt with time right don't be rigid i i, I want to uh, I, I fully agree with you <laughs> i know it's it sounds surprising but, but i fully agree with you um i i want to take your message and, and develop it just one step forward and i would like to hear your response all right you mentioned that uh, uh, one of the best practices is to have some visible security and some things, do you know, I, I don't want to use the word invisible, but things that the attackers cannot see, right? Or use of technology. So in the identity and access management world, we see the whole market is shifting very aggressively towards what we call advanced authentication or modernized authentication. And I'll explain. In the past, right, uh, when we wanted to verify identities, right, we used to put a, a, a gatekeeper in front of every data, uh, um, hopefully, or, or in front of the gates, the, the VPNs, you know, the entrances to, 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 to our uh, uh, perimeter, and, and verify the user identities using multi-factor authentication, right? That was our tool. Today, we, the, the notion is that we're moving from multi-factor authentication to modernized authentication in which multi-factor authentication is just one, one, one tool. Just one tool in that uh, 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 in that toolbox. The other tools, most of them are, as you mentioned, are not visible to the attackers. Like, for example, um, continuous authentication or continuous authorization, where you constantly collect signals and 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 uh, about the user's behavior, what they're trying to do. And it's, it's, it, the best analogy is that you switched uh, uh, a lock in, you know, to, to your house. You, you switched the lock into a smart security camera, right? That looks exactly what the users are doing. So we moved from that just use MFA to let's look at the entire signal set and context that you bring with you. Where are you physically located? Is this an abnormal behavior in, in comparison to what you are usually doing? Your device, your country, your, you know, a bunch of, a, a, a full bag of signals and we'll analyze them and we'll make sure that we are making the right decision. Uh, those tools are invisible to the attackers. Another tool uh, is, is using passwordless technology. That's another tools in, in, in modernized authentication where the attackers doesn't have a clue if that company is protected by passwords or they completely randomize them, right? So I just wanted to kind of take it and, 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 and you know, what you said and, and bring it to, to the industry terminology. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good to see that the industry is moving this way, right? Because the notion that you can authenticate someone, uh, especially if you think about, you know, just two-factor authentication, which is, you know, something you have, something you know, right? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a zero and one, right? The decision at the end of the day, right? And you're basically saying that it's moving towards 
more like a risk uh, assessment decision right so it's not it's not that uh, you kind of uh, walk in, into the door and once you are in everything is fine and I think this is the right model and and, and, and essentially I would say that trust needs to be earned right the fact that you present uh, an authentication token may give you the initial trust but that's not enough trust needs to be earned as and as you progress in your you know uh, working day or your online banking session or your you know fintech uh, crypto whatever whatever uh, all of those signals tell a story and if the story says hey this cannot be trusted uh, you stop it and today it's not just about unauthorized access again right it's also about things that you may regret later on like it's you right so theoretically it's okay but you know a day later you're, you're going to regret uh, having having done that right like like these scam situations right uh, so I, I i totally uh, you know agree that this is the approach i think this is a very mature uh, way of thinking about things and it's uh, great that the uh, security industry is uh, adopting this uh, you know concept so that's that's awesome so Yuri, that's uh, that's very interesting because uh, especially in financial services, if you recall decades ago, you know, we used to have a perimeter and we used to have rules to manage fraud and so on and so forth. But now that everything is so much faster, especially in, in payments terms, um, we can no longer rely on the, on static rules that were looking at the past in order to predict perhaps what was going to, to happen in the future on the basis of uh, of. Of historical context because now everything is so much fa- faster everybody is so much more ubiquitous we need to be able to understand context and attributes in a given situation and do all of this in quasi real time so what type of technologies can can help us with this yeah so uh, i think uh, asaf mentioned you know a lot of signals and lo- lots of uh, uh, visibility layers, right? That y- you need to aggregate and uh, do it continuously, right? So not just at login. In fact, a lot of the fraud uh, in online banking is happening after login. You might see the user logging in, and it's actually the user, you know, moving the mouse and and the user typing information, etc. And then two minutes later, you all of a sudden see that the session was hijacked, and you see remote access. The mouse is very jumpy and. Uh, you see like very slow responses and and what happened was that the user was tricked to install a team viewer or some sort of a remote access tool there was they were asked to log in so it's the real login of the user but then two minutes later the attacker is starting to move money right again it's a social engineering sort of scenario so definitely uh, you know that's the sort of uh, thing that we're uh, uh, seeing these days and uh, the, the the idea is to uh, try to look at a lot of signals. I, I, I did talk about uh, scams, right, and specifically authorized push payment scams. And I can tell that initially when I had a look at authorized push payments, I said there's no way to detect it because it is the real person. It's Liz or it's Nera or it's Asaf, right, inside their own account. How can you say something is wrong? Yes, they're moving money to a new destination. So, so, so what, right? It's like you can't really fight fraud based just on that fact, right? The false positives are going to be horrible. So this is uh, where you have data science. And this is where you have new and next generation uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, signals and analytics. 
because uh, when you actually started to look at those cases, those victims, a few interesting things emerged. Uh, remember this case that I talked about where uh, the victim was asked to move 9,000 pounds and then to wait for confirmation uh, and, uh, uh, you know, she, she actually did four payments in, in, in one session. Uh, the interesting thing was that after she moved the money, there was a period of about you know five to six minutes where what you see on the screen, like when you actually look at the data for this online banking session, you see that she moved the mouse for five minutes randomly, almost like doodling on the screen. Why is she doing that? Think about online banking. You're, you're doing something. You're you know moving money. You're, you're checking something. You're not going to spend five minutes just randomly moving your mouse on the screen, right? This is online banking. It's not an entertainment system. But the situation was that she was told to wait. She did not want to go out of her computer because maybe the session will close. It was a very stressful situation. She might have been bored, right? So, like, it's it, she's waiting for several minutes for the bank to tell her that everything is fine and she can move more money. So this is one thing. The user is heavily distracted, and you can see users moving the mouse. You can see them moving the, you know, wiggling the, the, the mouse wheel up and down and up and down, like for minutes. You should not see that in a normal uh, uh, session. So this is one thing. Once you start looking at device information, location information, these are like more, uh, you know, traditional technologies. Once you start looking at behavioral insights, you look at micro behaviors like hesitation, like uh, duress, like uh, distraction that I mentioned. Hesitation is another thing. Like typically, when you release a, a payment, you click on on the submit button. It takes 120 milliseconds on average, but but victims of social engineering, uh, like scams, they take something like 300 milliseconds to release the finger, right? And say, hey, I'm going to release, re- release those funds. Subconsciously, more processes are, are, are operating. So this is why you're more hesitant, you're, you're delayed. Or, or, or being guided, like you're, you're, you're being told what to do. So someone is reading the new destination, the new, the new bank account. So you have to listen to it. Your, your mobile phone is going to be uh, close to your ear. And then you will move it so you can type and you know close to your ear and you move it. It's in motion all the time when you're typing the the account number. Again, it's not normal. Normally, you hold the mobile device and you just tap the, the bank account number that you want to send money to. So these are called micro behaviors, and, and, and the idea is to collect as, as as many signals as possible. Like for example, maybe you know that there is an active call right now as the user is moving money. Okay, to their mobile device. That's another signal. Um, whatever. Try to get as many signals as possible and then use uh, machine learning to aggregate them into a coherent, uh, coherent uh, uh, you know, risk score that says, you know, do we see foul play here, right? That's the idea, to, to collect a lot of information, you know, signals. And uh, I would say that the other thing is uh, trying to map both the bad guys and the good guys. So trying to understand the way criminals are operating, but also the way good users are, are typically operating. Uh, because if you have both maps uh, uh, you know, developed uh, and accessible, you can then look at a specific event and see whether it, it's like more in the criminal distribution or more in the genuine distribution, right? So that's another uh, thing that is very helpful. You know, I... Um... I, I I have to wonder. Well, by by the way, uh, um, you, you you are talking about um, you know the prevention of, of fraud in the financial world. 
Um, and it all, I, I have to say, most of it is very relevant to the enterprise security, right? Because when somebody wants to, I don't know, get access or get privileged credentials on, on, on this domain controller, we need to make sure that this is the right guy, right? Right. We often see a lot of concerns in the enterprise world around privacy, right? You mentioned that if I'm a bank and, and one of my ways to prevent uh, uh, fraud is to gather all those signals. From my experience, do you see any pushback from the financial industry that, that they might say, oh, my users are are kind of, you know, concerned about their privacy and us collecting all those signals, or they they don't really care or the industry is not there yet? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I think specifically, if you think about this technology called behavioral biometrics or, or behavioral insights, let's call it behavioral insights, the idea is not to track the user, right? The idea is to understand the way they operate on their mobile device, the way they operate on their, you know, PC. And uh, typically what happens is that the bank would send like an encrypted user ID uh, to the platform that is doing the monitoring. So you don't even know who the who the person is, you know. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't uh, connect with a specific identity, right? Like Asaf, right? It just says, "Hey, an encrypted user ID, uh, or you know, hashed user ID, is is now moving the mouse in a certain way, and it looks for anomalies, right? And it looks for patterns, and, and it looks at the way criminals are doing this and the way normal people are doing this, and I think that's why uh, there's a high degree of comfort in uh, this uh, technology. Uh, in fact, because of the regulation uh, set by uh, the European, uh, you know, the the, the, the EU uh, for PSD2 and strong customer authentication on digital payments, uh, the UK regulator actually recommended uses, using this technology for uh, verified by Visa, Mastercard secure uh, code, uh, secure, and uh, it's known as Fiddy Secure. These are, uh, you know, e-commerce authentication. Uh, flows, and, and 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 the idea is, it's a way to collect information about what the user is doing in a very you know, uh, I would say, uh, secure way, right? So it's, it doesn't breach the user privacy. Again, you don't have any identifiable data that you're collecting, but at the same time, provide a high degree of uh, trust. Okay, so it's actually creating a very good balance, and uh, it is being used by every financial institution in the UK, right? Almost everyone, right? So the, the, the big banks, the smaller banks, uh, a lot of the uh, credit card issuers. Um, so that's... Uh... Because, the, the, you know, in, in, in the enterprise security world, um, we, we've seen a lot of cases where we, we try to help large enterprise, very large enterprise, hundreds of thousands of users, and the number that we see, right, because, you know, the, the best authentication tools today are reliant on mobile. It can be a mobile application, it can be FIDO technologies, all kinds of different mobile techniques and uh, mobile-based techniques. But we see a number that is something between 15 to 20% of, of those users that cannot rely on mobile to verify their identities or gather all the signals that we need in order to assess risk uh, because of, of the many different cases. In many cases, it's 
we just can't have mobile in our environment, right? We work in such an environment with, that, that we cannot use a mobile phone. But in many of the cases, it's just a pushback uh, in the form of, I don't want my employer to install anything on my personal phone, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm just worried that they'll, you know, track my, my behavior or my, my actions. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, and, and, and so we, we have to come up with a very, I would say, creative ways to make sure that 100% of these large enterprises employees are covered. Otherwise, if we'll just cover 80 or 85% of, of the, the population, right, of, of that uh, um, um, enterprise, 15%, it's, uh, it's tens of thousands of employees, are a big enough gate for the bad actors to, to exploit, right, to go in. So you mentioned earlier on uh, uh, in terms of the privacy concerns around behavioral biometrics, and I remember it well. I was just so pleased to see that you, the UK regulator was being pragmatic about it, and you explained it really, really well. But going back to regulations in general and to the scam you mentioned earlier uh, by which a bank account holder was tricked into transferring money to a fraudulent bank account. So this is something that has always puzzled me. So the very fact that that fraudulent bank account actually exists because there are regulations around that. There is KYC and EKYC and, you know, uh, verifying the accounts. So why is the fraudulent bank account opened by the bank in the first place? Couldn't, couldn't they apl apply the same best practice in that area? Uh, it's actually a very good uh, point. And I do think that banks in the UK, in Australia, in the US are working very hard on that specific point of trying to uh, sanitize the inflow of, uh, of uh, online uh, account opening and, uh, and you know, fight account opening fraud. Um, in the US, it's really, really bad situation, far worse than in the UK, simply because in the US, to begin with, you just open an account with data. Just, you know, your name, social security number, uh, you know, uh, date of birth, these sort of things. You might be asked some additional things, uh, same for credit card accounts. So the, the criminals have every imaginable uh, set of data, right, because they hacked into all of the databases. So it's it's a bloodshed in the U.S., right? You have so many. I, I have to just get, make a comment here because I, I live in the U.S. and I was. When I moved here, I was amazed. I was shocked that you can go do whatever you want. You can open a bank account. You can buy a house. You can do whatever you want just by presenting your social security number. And the shocking part is that on that social security card, you don't have a picture. Yeah. I can hold somebody else's social security card physically. It's a piece of paper. It's not even plastic and do whatever I want. Yeah, so so in the US, it's far, far easier. And actually, the numbers today, um, in order to, to move money, you need a mule account. Traditionally, a mule account, this is the destination account, right? Like what, what you said, Nera. Traditionally, in the US, mule accounts were collaborators. So were they, not, they were not accounts that uh, someone could open, right? Like 10 years ago, uh, the idea of, of a criminal, you know, opening an account in the U.S., let's say someone who is not in the U.S., 
was ridiculous. You, you couldn't do this, right? Because you 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 had to uh, 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 steal a lot of personal information from people. And 10 years ago, it wasn't the case, right? So uh, instead of uh, opening an account, the, the norm was to recruit collaborators. And there were very, you know, creative ways of how to recruit collaborators. So for example, in, the, in Australia, they went into high schools and they said, hey, we're a charity in East Europe. Uh, we're looking for uh, folks on the ground. So, you know, wealthy uh, Australians can donate uh, money. Uh, it will go into your account. You'll move it to our international account. You'll even get a small fee. And of course, you know, it's it's a charity. So you can put it in your resume, right? And it was very appealing for, uh, you know, for teenagers uh, that had an account, like a teenager account. So uh, this is a great way to recruit uh, collaborators. And of course, in Europe, you can do uh, all sorts of, you know, things like that. But I will say that in the US today, because it's so easy to open an account, and I am talking about the last, you know, four years, something like that, uh, 90% of mules are new accounts that were opened rather than collaborators. In the UK, it's still heavily... uh, uh, you know, tilted towards uh, collaborators, right? So most of these accounts are not going to be new accounts. They're going to be someone that collaborates with the criminal. Sometimes they know that they are collaborating. Sometimes they don't know that they are collaborating. But in any case, they receive the funds and then they're being asked to move the money uh, internationally uh, through other means, right? Not, not, not the banking system typically. Um, so that's the way they, they normally do it. So thank you both. And I'm afraid that's uh... All we have time for, but before I let you go, uh, I have one more question to ask. So very briefly, both of you, what is that one last piece of advice that you would give businesses today, starting with you, Asaf? I, I think my, uh, uh, my, my best advice is that there is no single silver bullet to prevent and I'm talking about uh, uh, enterprise security here, right? There's no single silver bullet that can prevent uh, uh, all types of attacks or uh, specifically even ransomware. It's everything. It's a mix of technologies. It's a mix of best practices. As we mentioned before, it's a moving target. Uh, uh, Companies have to be on their toes all the time and, and choose the right technologies uh, uh, and mix of vendors that they can go forward with, but it's never stagnant. That That's my biggest advice. I see companies that adopted this technology or those vendors five years ago or even three years ago, and they feel that they are protected. The flash news is not. And I have to throw in another piece of advice. Go back to basic, right? Uh, uh, the fundamentals of security are are the best tools that you can have and i'm talking about things like uh, uh segmentation network segmentations uh accounts management i'm talking about patching inventories all those fundamentals issue you know fundamental topics of security they they still they are still valid unlike what you hear in the news most of the time Thank you, Asaf. And how about you, Yuri? I, I will say that my, my advice is to think about it as, as a data game. You want a lot of data to, in order to make intelligent decisions around risk, around trust, around um, fraud, around financial crime. So 
you 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 know need to fight this armed with as many data points as humanly possible and it's a matter of uh, doing the right balance you know in terms of your budget and and your risk appetite etc but arming yourself with additional data points is always gonna uh, be helpful simply because everything is so adaptive everything changes uh, so much you know the the in, in, in fraud, it's typically the bad guys that are very adaptive. If you think about financial crime, money laundering, etc., it's actually the, the good people are very adaptive. You know, people do things that they didn't do five years ago, like cryptocurrencies and NFTs and, uh, you know, moving money to fintechs. And it's so dynamic, right? So whether uh, it's about uh, fighting financial crime or fraud or security, etc., it's a data game. Equip yourself with as, as many data points as, as you can. Uh, you know, put them through the right uh, technology. Make sure that you're mapping both the bad actors, but also the good users. Both are very important. Um, and this will allow you to make very smart decisions. Well, we could talk about hours about this, but I'm afraid this is all we have time for. You have been listening to the Talus Security Sessions podcast. Today's episode was, Is the Future of Identity Safe? Thank you to my fantastic guests, Asaf Lerner, Director of Product Management, Identity and Access Management at Talus, and Yuri Rivner, CEO and Co-Founder at Regutize. Thank you for listening and see you in the next podcast. Love this episode of the Talus Security Sessions podcast? Search us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast service to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit us at cpl.talusgroup.com to access previous episodes, bringing you insights from industry experts on the latest cloud and data security news and trends. Thank you for listening.